New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. President Theodore Roosevelt is invoked so often in our contemporary politics that it's easy to forget he died quietly in his bed a century ago. So who was the real flesh and blood man and what would he think of the way he's been evolved into a mythical folk hero? Hello everybody and welcome. I'm your host Dean Carianis and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio and a special tip of the hat to everybody watching today's time travel adventure via our YouTube channel. Please do subscribe there for this interview and some other special features I have. And you can read my columns in the Washington Times. I put some real TR in there oftentimes from this deep dig, this deep dive that we're going to do with today's guest, Michael Patrick Cullinane. He's going to pilot our time machine back to meet the real Theodore Roosevelt. He is the author of Theodore Roosevelt's Ghost, The History and Memory of an American Icon. And that book won the coveted TR Book Prize. So there's nothing supernatural about it. It's all hard history. Michael Patrick Cullinane is a professor of US history at Roehampton University in London. And he's the author of previous books, as well as the upcoming title, Remembering Theodore Roosevelt, Reminiscences of His Contemporaries. He also hosts the Gilded Age and Progressive Era podcast. Please do visit him at michaelpatrickcullinane.com. You can find details there and links to his social media accounts. You can also find those linked on the historyauthor.com page for this episode. Okay, now that we've arrived in the early years of the 20th century, let's join Michael Patrick Cullinane and have a little historical seance with Theodore Roosevelt's ghost. And here we are with Michael Patrick Cullinane. He's joining us from Ireland to chat about Theodore Roosevelt's ghost, the history and memory of an American icon. Thank you so much for making the time to chat with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dean. Well, I love to talk about TR and Theodore Roosevelt loves to be talked about. So if we are going to be talking about the title of your book, Theodore Roosevelt's Ghost today, certainly we're making his ghost happy. But one way to make his ghost happy certainly is to get his life right, to get what he thought right, to get what he did, what he didn't do, to see him as he he really was. We grew up with him on Mount Rushmore, right? We grew up knowing that he was a legend, but this wasn't always the case. His reputation has risen and fallen. For instance, 1943's Arsenic and Old Lace, we see him portrayed as kind of a buffoon. Dig through the myths, blow them away, and bring us this accurate portrait of the 26th president. A great question, because the myths are everywhere. In fact, I have to say, I think we we make the myths ourselves. We create them. We're very much part of, we're in, we're in the ghost-making business, actually, all of us. <laughs> and that's a great thing, because... Ultimately, the present is what dictates the past in a lot of, in almost all cases, we're rewriting the past on a regular basis. And in the case of TR, he is everywhere. So you mentioned Arsenic and Old Lace, which is a wonderful theater production come film, uh, Frank Capra film, 1930s. And it, it, it depicts Roosevelt as a bombastic juvenile, actually, you know, someone who thinks he's uh, Theodore Roosevelt. So who's actually mentally ill. 
Um, and what I wanted to do with that is to try and get in the mind of the actors to understand what they were thinking about Theodore Roosevelt at that time when they were portraying him. So the actor in that case who was portraying him was informed by a biography. Uh, and I think in a lot of cases too, documentaries, films, a lot of cultural productions rely on biographers. They are extremely powerful people. And the biographer that inspired this, that film and inspired a generation is Henry Pringle's Pulitzer Prize winning biography of Theodore Roosevelt, which casts him as a juvenile delinquent president who is all id and no sort of restraint. Uh, and, and so, you know, a lot, a lot of what I was looking at was what biographers had said, how it was digested by cultural producers, and, and how it came to resonate in public memory. You said we're in the ghost making business and something that you quote early in Theodore Roosevelt's ghost is John Dewey. And he says of every man who goes into political life, there gradually grows up a double. The double consists of the acts of the original individual reflected first in the imagination and then in the desires of acts of other men. How does the double differ from the real TR? How many things did you start racking up that not unrecognizable from the legend, but how many things in your book tell us this guy was completely different than what a lot of people on the street, even people who love TR, think he was? I, the reason why I love that quote is because I think we do it today as well. When I started writing the book, I thought about Gerald Ford, actually. When Ford died, uh, he, he was memorialized in the same way. He was almost sainted, really, you know, as, a, as the president who united the country after Watergate. But, you know, we, we know that that wasn't entirely true, that Ford was not praised for that when he pardoned Nixon. And so I wanted to get to the root of what Dewey was trying to get at with that quote, was that really we are in the business of reshaping our political heroes and our political enemies. In fact, it was one of TR's political enemies who latched onto that Dewey quote, William Jennings Bryan, who said that right now, at the time of TR's death, we're going to mourn him and we are going to praise all of his achievements. And in years to come, that'll change. And that's exactly what happened in the 1920s. You couldn't find a book or, uh, or anyone to say a bad word again, Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt. But come the 1930s, that changed. And then it changed again and again until today, He's almost a, uh, because he's, he's changed so many times, he's almost a nonpartisan or bipartisan figure in, in American uh, iconography. So um, it's, a, it's an interesting transition that happens, and, and Dewey spotted it from the very beginning. They even, I believe, stopped switching the photo, the painting, I'm sorry, in the Roosevelt Room of the White House. It used to be tradition that Democrats would have FDR and Republicans would have TR, and I believe it was... Bill Clinton, who brought in TR or kept TR rather and didn't switch him out. And he had that connection later. President Clinton wanted to get the Medal of Honor posthumously for TR, and they ultimately do get to do that. So he becomes somebody who you claim. And then it's just like his distant cousin, Franklin Roosevelt. He said one day, well, it's time that Democrats claim Abraham Lincoln as our own. Like when you when you people admire you so much, they say, well, he's ours. We want him now. Let, let's take him now. Let's let's make him our own. But the problem with that is then we start to think this person couldn't have possibly disagreed with me on anything. That's something that I always like to say is dead people always agree with us. Isn't that funny, right? <laughs> Somehow they always manage to, yeah, yeah, he would totally support what I am doing right now. Well, it wasn't the case. TR had many strong opinions. They changed over his life. 
And that brings me to a piece that you had in the Washington Post. Theodore Roosevelt will be the first to agree his statue should come down. Now, this is about that statue in Manhattan outside the Museum of Natural History. So for me, I love the statue. And I say, well, man, I want to keep it there. It's inspiring. I understand what the artist was trying to do with it. I understand the role of the African and Native American guides in that. But then I hear from a historian like you and you pull me back and you say, sorry to tell you, TR, TR would not have been a fan. So explain a little bit about that for us. Okay, so absolutely important that we get this right on three different levels, right? There's the the, the artist who crafts the sculpture and there's the artistic value of it, which is hard to disagree with because James Earl Fraser is a wonderful artist. He's a really close friend of TR. And there's, there's an aesthetic merit to the, the piece itself. The second part about it is about the dedication of the statue, which actually happens in 1936. And it's Franklin Roosevelt who dedicates the statue. And the reason why that's so interesting is because on the dais with Franklin Roosevelt are his two cousins, Mrs. Longworth, Alice, PR's eldest daughter, and Ted, his namesake and first uh, son. And the both, the both of them are looking at Franklin Roosevelt as if they've just, uh, the president has just stolen TR as, 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 a, as a Democrat when, you know, they see him as different politically, personally, and, and certainly a different party. And then there's the third thing, and that's what TR wanted. Um, so, when TR, before he dies, he tells his wife and his oldest son, Ted, that he doesn't want to be depicted in any sort of statue. And also, he definitely doesn't want to be depicted in any sort of equestrian statue. And that's something that his wife uh, continues to say to memorializers after he's dead. Please don't depict him in this way. And, <laughs> and, yet, and yet that's exactly what happens time and time yeah. again. Um, so it's, it's in some ways... I don't think, yeah, it's not, it's not what TR would have wanted because he expressed he expressly said that he didn't want that. It's also probably not what the family wanted, this memorial announced by Franklin Roosevelt. And then finally, I'm not sure that it bodes, it, it doesn't really fit with where we are culturally today. If it's offending people today and TR didn't want it, even if there's aesthetic value to it, it seems like it's probably better to put it somewhere where we can curate it and think more deeply about it, just like we're doing right now. He's up on the horse right there in his own oyster bay. And you think of that and you say, my gosh. And these are the things we read about people in history. And we admire them, like them. I think it's so important that we hear their voice. And I think of this often with his predecessor, William McKinley. And I look at the fight over renaming Denali, the highest point in North America, the mountain, or switching the name back to one of the many names the mountain has. Denali really just means the high one in one of the languages of Alaskan native people. But I say, you know, I want his name on the mountain because I love him and respect and admire McKinley. I want TR on a horse and a statue because I love and admire and respect him. But neither of them would have wanted that. So I have to step back and say, okay, they're, they're not a ghost. They were real people. And if I respect them, I have to respect their wishes. I love that you did that here in this book. Well, thank you. And I think one of the other places where that's really apparent as well is, uh, and I know you know this place, it's over on East 20th Street in downtown Manhattan. And uh, it's the birthplace or what they call the birth, Theodore Roosevelt's birthplace. And that was a place that really no one in the family had any intention of supporting. It's a replica building. It, what was there before was a commercial building. It was actually a, a shop front and then some uh, some commercial space above it. 
And that Roosevelt in 1905 was, was uh, the, there was a club called the Roosevelt Home Club that actually petitioned to have his house saved in 1905. And he was president then, and he absolutely didn't want it. In fact, he told them to cease and desist. And it, it was because of that, that the house was demolished and that commercial structure was raised. Um, and then in the 1920s, after he dies, there's a group of really impressive female activists called the Women's Roosevelt Memorial Association that put that house there. But that's a great example as well of, uh, of where we're not really in sync with what TR wanted. And, and the best one of all of them is the 16-foot statue in Washington, D.C. on Theodore Roosevelt Island. I mean, it, the thoughts of that even disturbed his children who didn't want that statue either. If you're going to, if you're going to keep that ghost alive, you're going to keep him alive in our politics and in our world. You have to know the real guy. When I read a footnote, one of the TR biographies behind me, I saw that he met with Churchill for the first time, and I was so excited. So I wanted to go read the footnote. They must have been great friends. They had so much in common. I liked both of them. Oh, my gosh. TR couldn't stand him. It was heartbreaking for me. as I was younger then, I guess, not so cynical. And I thought, oh, how, how could they not have just gotten along swimmingly and been pals and gone hunting together? And I, That's what I wanted to read. And it just wasn't the case. That's a perfect example of how this kind of thing happens. We think the ghost is the real person because the real person's no longer here to speak to us, even his children. You mentioned Mrs. L, Alice, his oldest child, his first child, and the last one to pass away. They called her the other Washington Monument, so that gives you an idea of how important she was. Let me ask you a question about that legacy and the role that the widow of Theodore Roosevelt Edith played because she was so long lived also. She lived a long time after him. What role do the children play, his six children, in TR's legacy and in the ghosts that we see today, as opposed to the real man? Yeah, it's a great question because they all play a different role. Uh, you mentioned Edith. Edith doesn't die until 1948, and she plays a really important role in largely the, the 25 years between his death and when she passes away, particularly in those first 10 years. Um, in the 1920s, she basically was the gatekeeper for all of the resources that biographers would use. And she also sued uh, or threatened to sue some of TR's friends who wanted to use letters that he had written to them. And she was really trying to protect TR's legacy as best she could, but she didn't do a great job. I mean, by restricting the materials, what she did was, was she let poor biographers uh, have a shot at TR. And then in later years, uh, that, led, that led to a complete revision of, of TR. So it was quite a stark uh, division between these sort of like really hagiographical biographies, sainthoods, you know, versus this, you know, petulant, crazy Teddy that's presented in the 1930s. A lot of that is down to uh, Edith. And Ted, who is his eldest son and, and, does, um, and does try and restrict biographers as well. Alice, or, or Mrs. Ellis, she's better known, plays a completely different role in taking up an anti-Wilsonian stance from really TR's death in 1919 throughout the 1920s. She was a, uh, her other uh, nickname was the Colonel of the Battalion of Death, and she got that by opposing Wilson's League of Nations. I mean, she didn't single-handedly defeat it. And of course she wasn't in the Senate, but you know, she, she cultivated a group around her that were known as the Irreconcilables. And she 
foisted her ideology about geopolitics on them, and they very much carried that through to the Senate and then crushed the, um, the League of Nations. The US, obviously, the U.S. never joins that group. And she became an isolationist in the 1920s, believing that that's what her father would have advocated. Now, her uh, TR's other kids play roles as well. Uh, Archie, which is his, uh, is one of his, well, youngest son after Quentin dies, uh, he, he publishes some pretty strange stuff in the 1950s, really bigoted and, and racist um, uh, diatribes, anti-communist. And he took up uh, the, the sort of the side of Roosevelt in the, in the World War I period, where he was very much uh, against uh, hyphenated Americanism and against immigrants and all for assimilation is, is what Roosevelt would have called it. So that's Archie. And then his youngest daughter, Ethel, she really saved the Roosevelt Memorial Association in the 1970s. So this was a, a memorial fan club, basically, a really important group, congressionally chartered. They were sort of losing steam in the 1970s. And it was Ethel that rejuvenated them, put people in, in important positions within the association and kept the legacy and memory of, of TR going. So they've all played a role in, in some way or another, it's it's important, I think, to, to view TR's legacy through his family, because it's, of course, not just his kids, it's his grandkids. And it's it's also indirect descendants, Hyde Park Roosevelt's that, you know, there's, and th this comes out in the other book that I published about TR's contemporaries and what they had to say about him. A lot of the family, a lot of the neighborhood friends, you know, a lot of them bring the legacy forward into the, into the 20th century. And you have Franklin Roosevelt who really, you meant you used the word steel, so I don't feel bad about using the word steel because I've been trying to stop myself from using it because that's really what happens. And and poor Ted, his Ted Jr., Theodore Roosevelt Jr., lives his whole life with being compared to his father. And this is something that Alice says. She says, poor Ted, he, he can't walk across the street without somebody comparing him to the old man. And if he walks across You'll have 10 guys saying, oh, oh TR would have done it better. He, he doesn't know how to walk across the street. And even if Ted does it perfectly, they say, ah, he did it just as old Teddy would have done it. So he he, he is an amazing man in his own right, uh, is Ted Jr. In fact, I interviewed an author on Ted and, and about his service, mostly in the wars, the two world wars. So talk about a ghost. They all had so much to live up to. And then their cousin comes in. And says, hey, or their distant cousin, really, and their cousin, their first cousin, Eleanor. And they say, well, sorry, you got to get out of the way so Franklin can get to the White House because he's going to be governor. You're not Ted. We're just going to push you out of the way and we're going to steal your dad from you and we're going to name ourselves. What role does FDR play in reshaping this notion of Theodore Roosevelt's ghost that you discuss in Theodore Roosevelt's ghost? And how does your book reclaim that and turn back the clock to a time when we just had one president roosevelt on the books yeah it's a great question because he franklin roosevelt obliterates the previous roosevelt theodore at least in public memory in the 30s and 40s and and it's not really until the 50s that uh, i think john morton bloom called uh, tr the republican roosevelt to try and revive that uh, that that earlier administration that had been forgotten during fdr's four terms or nearly four terms. So, however, 
The one thing I would say about FDR is that he doesn't try and uh, present himself as a son or daughter of Roosevelt, but it comes across that way for him, unfortunately, because uh, he, he, he wants to be as respectful as possible, but ultimately his name is Roosevelt. And in 1920, when he runs for vice president, he sees the benefit of that. I mean, the Democratic Party sees the benefit of him being a Roosevelt. And so they nominate him. I mean, he was he was a junior politician at that stage, probably wouldn't have been nominated for vice president had he not had that Roosevelt name. But where things really kick off between the Oyster Bay clan and the Hyde Park clan is in 1920. Ted and Alice really take offense to, to Franklin running as vice president. And they believe he's, he, he's only doing it because he's got the Roosevelt name. Ted follows him around on his speaking tour and you know tells people after Franklin's talked in Montana or in Wyoming, this guy is not really a Roosevelt. So in terms of where things began, it was 1920. And the Oyster Bay clan are the ones that took offense first. By the time... Franklin Roosevelt is recovering from polio and is back in the political scene. Ted is going to run for governor of New York and Franklin and Eleanor are going to get their, their back uh, for all of the torment that, uh, that Ted gave them in 1920. They go out in a, in a car, uh, uh, a sedan car at that time, which was fairly sizable vehicle with a, a paper mache teapot on it, which was supposed to symbolize the teapot dome scandal that, Ted had gotten wrapped up in, although he had nothing, uh, nothing to do with. Uh, he was tar- he was tarred by that, and ultimately this becomes tit for tat for the rest of their lives. Both of them die in 1945. Uh, Ted and Franklin they had buried the hatchet uh, by by the time of World War II, realizing the threat to the nation and their shared uh, their shared values really at that stage. And he also got the. Congressional Medal of Honor. I got it. Got it posthumously right there. Only the second. The others are the MacArthur's. You're absolutely right to point out that Ted had this really remarkable career as well. He was um, he was governor of Puerto Rico. Um, he, he he really was a powerhouse in New York politics for a while. Although he never could get the momentum to be uh, to be what his father was or what his cousin Franklin would be, and and largely that was down to the times. Re- Republicans were losing elections and. And, uh, and, and so th- that was more a product of the, the, the times than it was down to his success uh, or, or political abilities. It's hard to have the timing right. And Franklin Roosevelt's son is much the same thing. He breaks down crying when he tries to, to go and they try to go into the family business. If you look back at the sons and daughters of presidents, but mostly the sons, because our presidents have all been men so far, it, there's a lot of weight on them. And it's hard. How do you live up to that? It's just that thing about crossing the street. If you you have TR's ghost in your mind, you say the best you could say about a son is, oh, he crossed the street just as his father would. So it's hard to, to surpass a president. You have a presidential dad. Absolutely. And it's it's difficult on all of them in different ways. So Ted actually has a breakdown as early as 1898, I believe, when TR was going off to the to fight that war in Cuba. Uh, Ted was having a breakdown about the pressure that was on him. Kermit, um, we know, committed suicide 
in uh, in World War II in Alaska, largely due to the pressure. And and Archie felt that as well. I mean, we know that Quinton Quinton uh, died. In fact, there's a really great book by Betty Boyd Caroli uh, called The Roosevelt Women, in, in which she gets a quote from one of the Roosevelt women uh, saying, I don't know why we study the men. The men are like bags of nerves, whereas the women are the real rock of that family. And, it, and she's absolutely right. If you study the women of the Roosevelt family, whether it's Eleanor or Edith or Ethel or Alice, they are way more interesting in, in some ways. The pressure on the men is, is almost too intense and it, it breaks them down. And a lot of them fall into alcoholism or drug abuse like uh, Eleanor's father, Elliot. But the women are really uh, rocks and their fortitude is incredible. And their sisters as well, or TR's sisters rather, were really something. Uh, Bammy, one of them, and uh, mm -hmm. they called Bi because here she's She's twisted. I believe she had spina bifida, whatever, whatever it was at the time that they, they couldn't quite diagnose. And she was still so fast and would run in and race in and out of rooms. And so they called her by because it was always by. She'd be zooming past. And and Alice has that, too, a little bit when she's young. And I was just looking while you were speaking for some of those books. One very obscure one is called All in the Family. And that's by Ted. And he writes about their whole family and a lot of the things kind of to get his campaign going, maybe if he thinks he's going to follow in the footsteps but you go to that cemetery in Oyster Bay where TR is laid to rest and you see some pretty short dates on some of those headstones where you have had people who had great tragedy, took their own lives. And this is part of TR's ghost. It's something that, that David Petrusha mentions in the epilogue of his book, TR's Last War, where he says, you know, when he was down there in South America or whenever he hunted, he always carried that vial of morphine to overdose himself so he wouldn't be a burden. And so at the end of his life, who's, who knows that there are some, there are some details that he brings out some facts about the way he passed away and talks about, we can't know these things, but we don't want to think that you and I, Mike, we want to think, no, no, he went out with his boots on. He'd never, he'd never possibly just give up like that. He's Theodore Roosevelt, but that's not the real man. And I thank you for this service you've done to history. And really on behalf of this guy, I, I showed you earlier that I have him here, you did a real service on behalf of him because you tell us who the real guy was. He was stiff and lame and sore. He was blind in that one eye after that boxing incident. He he had real problems, infections, also deaf in one ear late in his life. He he wore out. So I want you to mention something. I, I showed you my, my TR bust here. People watching on YouTube can see it. You have one behind us. Tell us what, what that is and what it means to you. Because that, that's something really special. Mine's just bought from the store. Yours is earned. <laughs> <laughs> so this is uh, this is the book award that the Theodore Roosevelt Association uh, gave to me in 2019 uh, or 2018, and it's uh, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty treasured. I mean, I spent 10 years uh, studying TR and studying about well, basically, I've seen him everywhere for for. Those ten years, I couldn't, I couldn't help but see him in commercial advertisements, Washington Nationals, uh, president runs. I mean, you know, he he shows up everywhere. And the thing for me, just going back to what you were saying, Dean, about if there's any service done with this book, I hope it is that we are as a human being, and so often we expect from our leaders to be more than human. And I think understanding that we all have our faults. There's a great line that Whitman has in uh, in his poetry is famous uh, song of myself, where he says, do I contradict myself? So I do. I contain multitudes. And I think for TR, that's so apt. I mean, this is a man 
who at one stage was advocating that the U.S. go to war and then also negotiated an end of one of the bloodiest wars of the 20th century. You know, he's he's got so many contradictions. He killed 11,000 animals on his nine month safari. And yet he's he's better known for his conservation efforts, rightly so as well. So he's a man of contradictions. And I think all of us as human beings are. So for me, the book tries to get to the heart of that, to show that we're, we currently today are the ones that are the agents of his memory, the keepers of that flame. And we need to be honest about that, not only about the past and what he wanted, but, but what our interests are in remembering and memorializing him the way that we do. He's really everywhere in our world. He, he shows up on The Simpsons. Literally, his ghost shows up on The Simpsons. So, And they do a whole episode. Uh, Bart Stops to Smell the Roosevelt's, I believe is the name. And this, this is something that when you realize he's dead 100 years and you stop and you reflect, you say, of course, he can't be the guy that we know. Everybody's had their hand in his legacy. Absolutely. And I think some, for me, some of the most interesting depictions are commercial advertisements. And they're, they're almost subliminal now. I mean, Cadillac had an ad out in 2019, uh, an uh, integrated campaign. It was print, internet, video, uh, and it was, it was called Dare Greatly, where uh, a female uh, announcer was just basically talking through one of TR's speeches. And the next week I saw an ad for another TV channel, which was a wellness channel. And it had a quote from TR saying, you know, if you kick the person who is most responsible for all the things in your life, you wouldn't sit for a week. Um, so you've got like Cadillac telling you to dare greatly, and you've got this wellness TV channel telling you to kind of just, you know, reflect on your life and take it easy. I mean, this is PR, but in two very different guises. And, and that continues in, in so many different places today. You're enjoying my conversation with Michael Patrick Cullinane. His book is Theodore Roosevelt's Ghost, The History and Memory of an American icon. He's also host of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era podcast. Visit him at michaelpatrickcullinane.com. You can also find him on Twitter and LinkedIn. Serge Ricard, editor of A Companion to Theodore Roosevelt, calls Theodore Roosevelt's ghost a most original contribution to U.S. cultural history and to the study of an exceptional president whose achievements still resonate in the collective psyche. This book throws the light on the cultivation and workings of historical memory and should arouse interest not only among Roosevelt scholars and other historians, but also among social scientists and all students of cultural memory and cult-like commemorations, unquote. So there we have that word cult again. And that's very easy for all of this admiration of Theodore Roosevelt's ghost. People who have craven images of him like I do and you do there. Very easy to, to turn him into a figure that's up in stained glass, which is actually the case. You just were, were mentioning to me before we started recording. But he did change. He was different. He had contradictions like all of us. He's so against remarriages, second marriages when his first wife dies. But he's young and he wants to get married and have love and have a family. So he gets remarried. That, that's a contradiction. In his own life, I'm sitting, you're sitting with many books behind me. There was a fad called the, I think it was the 100, what was it? The 100 meter book or the 10 foot library, something like that, where you would pick your 100 favorite books and people would have discussions back and forth. And TR himself says, that, well, there's no 
one set of 100 books that you'll like at 20 that you still are still as important at 50 that are still important when you're when you're 60 and 70 or when you're 10 years old certainly you change and i admire what was in that quote right there anybody who can make an original contribution and that's the phrase there that mr ricard used to the scholarship of somebody so written about as tr give us a few things that readers will find in here that explain away or that debunk some of the portrayals of your subject. He's somebody that's even more inspiring to us than somebody who's just perfect up there on Mount Rushmore. Well, Rushmore is a really good example. I mean, there's a lot of really great memorials. Uh, when I say great, I mean great examples of memorials that are often confused, misunderstood. And I think for Roosevelt, uh, he, he was really keen on artistic memorials and utilitarian memorials. So, uh, you know, he talks a little bit about that when he's alive. But one of the one of the last things that he contributed to in a cultural uh, capacity was a movie called Our Teddy, better known as the Fighting Roosevelts. And this was a movie about his sons and his service in World War One. And of course, he loses a son in 1918. Quentin is uh, shot down uh, in over France, and he's he's buried in France. And uh, and and that was a moment that really forced Roosevelt to confront some of the the things that he had advocated in his own life, the strenuous life included uh, a sort of martial spirit, going off to war, fighting, and he encouraged all of his sons to do that. Two of them fight in both world wars, uh, but losing his son Quentin in 1918 was a moment that really made him reflect. And it would have been interesting to see if he had lived any longer, but he dies about, I think it's less than six months after Quentin uh, himself dies if that reflection would have would have led to a different view about warfare, fighting, militarism, and America's role in the 20th century. Um, so I think, I, I think he had those moments where when he was in office as president, he was often very different when he was out of office. I mean, take, for example, his advocating for uh, war with Spain in, in 1898 versus when he's in office negotiating, you know, a peace in, in, in the, the Far East or when he's looking to calm down relations with Morocco and, and, and European imperialism. And then take, you know, when he's out of office again in 1914 and the Lusitania uh, gets sunk, I mean, he's all about preparedness and going back to war then again. So he's a man that you have to think about what job he's got and also how old he is, because I think as he gets older, he changes his perception of life. And I think that's the same for all of us as well. I mean, you talk about books, T.R. had a library that he brought with him to Africa for a nine-month safari known as the Pigskin Library. That would, that would have probably been very different had it been 20 years prior. And I, I think, you know, looking at T.R. in a sort of temporal way helps us understand how we ourselves think about the past uh, based on our age. It's really true. You have different heroes, too, just in the course of your own life, different people that you're, you're going through a phase with T.R., you're going through a phase with... Uh, James Buchanan is so different, so diametrically opposed. You're going through a civil war phase. So mm -hmm. those are all things that help us and that make this book not just another biography of the guy, not just another book that says, oh, gosh, did you know he ran up San Juan Hill? And I know with uh, Tweed Roosevelt, I mentioned, he says, every time I meet somebody, they'll tell me a story that I've heard 
a hundred times before about, about my great grandfather. And they'll say, Oh, I bet you never heard that one before he says. And I, I politely say, Oh no, I never heard that one before, but of course he, he's a scholar on the gentleman. So he knows who he was. That doesn't bother him. What bothers him is when people ask him what he was really like. And he says, how old do you think I am? And that, I'm not, you know, the guy passed away a hundred years ago. I'd have to be 125 now to have any meaningful memories of him. Right. So that just, dovetails so well here with Theodore Roosevelt's ghost, right? Because here we, we think he just died last week. It was over a hundred years ago now, 101, 102. So that, that is, that is priceless because uh, stories from Tweed Roosevelt about what annoys him. Uh, it, it, I mean, the, 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 I think the number one thing that annoys him is when people reprisers or reenactors try and pretend to be Theodore Roosevelt. And he said to me once, Imagine if someone dressed up like one of your relatives and then pretended to be that person and how unnerving it would be. And he's absolutely right. And yet we do that all the time. There are people that um, there are people that do shows for leadership, for corporate audiences, for entertainment. And we don't think at all really about what it might be like for descendants and well, also the distortions that it's making on uh, on that person's life, on TR's life. I was looking there while you were speaking for a book behind me, and it's a book by Ann Serling about her father, as I knew him, my dad, Rod Serling. And she talks about in the book an experience that she has. It's very similar to what you're mentioning, where she's at Universal Studios, I believe, and they have a guy walking around doing an impression of her father. And she tells him who she is. And it's very disturbing. Of course. I mean, her father passed away. It's painful. I have this creepy guy like shadowing you. And, and yet because he was a president, we all feel, Oh, we just own him. He's just ours. We can make him do whatever we want. I can put him in a little play here and, you know, make him say whatever I want. He's not going to, he's not going to complain. So I, I love that, that you, that you bring that up there about Tweed and about the people that keep a legacy of somebody like Theodore Roosevelt, that everybody feels completely entitled to put in their car commercial. Absolutely. I mean, Dean, though, if you do want to talk Jersey, we can do that too. You know, we can, <laughs> you know, I, I, I know Bergen County pretty well, so we can riff on, you know, what's going on in, in, in Westwood or what's, you know, what's happening in, uh, you know, what's, what's Bergenfield's uh, St. Patrick's day party going to be like this year, you know? Yeah. I hope they have it this year. That's uh <laughs> This is but the thing, and I just, I want credit from, from everybody that neither of us have slipped into any kind of accent. We are both speaking very professionally. This speaks well for your podcast and hopefully well for, for my show as well. You talked about memorials. You just talked about New Jersey. That's perfect. As a fellow Jersey boy, we have something to be proud of in the Garden State. And it's one of those artistic monuments that you just talked about, that you said TR liked. It is the only monument to his environmental work. It's in Tenafly, New Jersey. You just mentioned a couple of towns there in Bergen County. This is right next to Bergen Field. And it's one, actually, I, when I was in college, I went and visited it. And it was, it was really, it's a limestone. So it's very soft. It had been painted on it. I had swastikas and stuff. And I, I got really bothered by that. Having been, I went to the Greek Orthodox Church there growing up. I had relatives in Tenafly. I cared about the town and about TR. So I wrote the paper. And the paper got on it and started doing stories. And then I got a letter from the mayor saying, next time, please just call me because this is a real headache for me. But I wanted the thing cleaned, right? I wanted to see it restored. So how do you think that memorial fits in with 
TR's vision, not the man on the horse, not the man carved into the mountain, not even the man sitting here on our desks, respectively. But how do you think a memorial like that that focuses on his work and doesn't turn him into a demigod would reflect what he wanted for his legacy to be? So I, I love the memorial. I think it's it's really great to have one in Jersey. And I, I think it, it is one that he would have liked for a number of reasons. Uh, one, he's not depicted as himself. Two, he's not depicted on horseback. But three, he's depicted as a conservationist. And that's something that Edith and him both very much wanted him to be portrayed as. And interestingly, when that memorial goes up in the 1920s, most people aren't really talking about conservation anymore. It's not until we get into debates about climate change that we start to talk about TR, the wilderness warrior. But he is and remains the, the greenest president we've ever had. Not only does he enact more laws and legislation that uh, that positively affect our environment, but also he loved it. He created a sense of, of a love for the outdoors that he tried to inculcate in other people, including the mass of America. So that's that's part of why I think it's so important. It always breaks my heart to see it vandalized. It's in a park and it's like a perfect place for, for uh, teenagers to go. It's right near the high school. And, right. and so it's like a, a perfect hangout for teenage kids. And it's unfortunate that it gets vandalized. Um, but it's the I, I always think about the cougar. I think it's a cougar that's there because his TR's tennis cabinet donated a cougar to him uh, when he was leaving office. And Carl Ackley, a, uh, a naturalist, actually sculpted a lion uh, that was supposed to be a, a representation of TR. And he loved those sort of things. In fact, Edith said that if she could, she'd like to have the lion that Carl Ackley had, had crafted to be part of the National Memorial, but it never came off. So that one seems particularly fitting to me. And great, right here in New Jersey. So that's good that they did something right for his legacy because you talk about vandalizing. And when you talk about vandalizing something physically with paint, that's one thing. But then when you see books, you see claims, there was a terrible book out that I, I won't even name and not terrible because I love TR, but just because it failed the history so spectacularly, but he's still getting blamed for things a hundred years later. He's still being, he's still being invoked and pulled and pushed and being judged. And they, he had many times when he was speaking and he was off the cuff. We all do that. And yet we, we write down what he says, cause he's important. He's not allowed to be, as they say in baseball, there's a distinction. I believe it's in George Brett's book between horse something and bull, the, uh, the same thing. And uh, they say, nobody knows where this came from in baseball, but there is a real distinction where the horse, that's you're challenging somebody's character. Now you're serious about it and people will take offense. You get thrown out of a baseball game for, for telling a ref that a call was, was horse excrement. And so this is the thing with TR. Sometimes he was just speaking. Sometimes he just was, was, was full of it just like any of us. And I, I love that you bring us that here in Theodore Roosevelt's Ghost. You also talk about his time in Cuba. This was a legend and a time that he had a reason to talk of his crowded hour, hour, right? When he gets shot in 1912 after he's out of the presidency, he knows that's a dramatic moment, but people also get that wrong. You hear people say he got shot during the speech. Well, he was going into the speech and it's a, it's a, Small, maybe seems distinction, but it's it's pretty important. Nobody keeps talking after they get shot in the chest. But he went and gave a speech after he got shot in the chest. And he, he said, I think I'm okay. And he just pinked me is the phrase that he uses. So 
all of these are moments that the colonel himself pumped up to his own benefits. So I wanted to ask you, what events of TR's life do you think he maybe wouldn't want us to look so closely at? Maybe he would want us to think, oh, yes, I, I had a bully day that day. That didn't bother me at all. But we know that he really did struggle with that. And it was a moment that made him more human. It's a great question, because I think there are times in his life where he can say, I'm just blowing off steam. You know, it's just a bit of BS, whatever. But there's times when he's president, when he makes decisions that you can't blow that off because it has a direct impact on a number of people in the United States. And so I think for me, the bits that he probably wouldn't want you to look closely at are some of the bad decisions as president. And there are a couple. And and interestingly, I think most of the biographies of Roosevelt deal more with the heroics of Roosevelt, you know, up San Juan Heights or, you know, the the, the Brazilian uh, uh, expedition or the, the safari. The presidency is the one where he when he does get things wrong, they're pretty lasting. So one of the interesting things to me was Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who was one of the leading suffragettes of the time when T.R. was president. She's going to die in 1902, in fact, when T.R. is president. One of the last letters that she writes is to TR, and he tells uh, she tells him, you know, push for women's suffrage. It will make you immortal. And she's absolutely right. If TR had pushed for women's suffrage when he was president, even if he did it like the way he did when he was running for president in 1912, which was a sort of like, you know, ham-fisted half measure. Uh, if he had done that in 1902, he would have been immortal. The, the, the country, especially all of the women that wanted to vote, would have seen him as a hero, as important as probably Lincoln in Washington. I think he would have been in that trio of greats. The other thing that I, other decision that I think he probably wouldn't want us to look at is the Brownsville decision, which is uh, TR's record on uh, African-American and race relations. So he does sit down with Booker T. Washington when he comes to the White House, which is a huge moment. We don't want to overlook that. And that's a really big moment for social equality. The first African-American to eat dinner with a president in the White House. In later, in later years, though, T.R. dismisses a, a troop of African-American soldiers down in Brownsville, Texas, uh, for reasons that are really dubious. And that's that's a stain on his, his administration, uh, you know. Equally, Native American rights is probably somewhere where he wouldn't want us to focus too heavily. He didn't have a great rapport with, with Native Americans. He, there's some really uncomfortable things that he says about Native Americans in, in correspondence. So I think the decisions that, that he took as president are the ones that you can sort of nail him down a little bit more as not being as heroic. The other things, the, the tales and the, the lore of his time before and after the presidency are they're like old fishermen stories. They can get as big as you want. Uh, and, uh, and, and, they, and they tell a message. They're almost like fables where they've got a, a moral at the end of it. So I, I think that's why TR gets presented. Those years, uh, uh, the bookends of his presidency are really depicted in greater depth. You mentioned Elizabeth Cady Stanton. I wanted to pluck her out from all that. And he talks to the suffragists and he says, well, get a few more states on board and, and I'll, I'll think about supporting it. And he's very much for motherhood and he, he writes many letters. As I, I mentioned to you that I have all the letters of Theodore Roosevelt, every letter talking about the letters and things you find, every letter he's ever written, this is about five, six volumes behind me. So thanks eBay. But Elizabeth Cady Stanton also happens to be, her house anyway happens to be 
right there in Tenafly, New Jersey, up the up the hill, up uh, its hillside there. My cousin used to live down the street right there, right near TR. So a little more New Jersey history there, a little more synergy from the Gilded Age, something that you discussed there in your in your podcast about the progressive era and the Gilded Age. That was the thing about TR was he he thought out loud so much. He wrote so much down. Of course, you're not always going to be consistent. We get to pick up the book and say, well, wait a minute. In this letter to Cecil Spring Rice, you were much different. You were, you were telling Springy one thing. And then 50 years later, when you wrote a letter, to, like, well, that's, that's not how human beings work. And you wouldn't yeah. want to meet somebody that, that was like that, that never changed. It never said, well, new things have happened now. I need to come. I mean, he's thought of today as this big progressive, the the people, as we were saying, that Democrats want to claim him. Well, in 1896, he goes with the Speaker of the House, Joe Cannon. And there's a, there's a Cannon you can see there in, in Ted's house at Sagamore Hill. He wants to go with Cannon, does TR, because he thinks McKinley's too liberal. He's too friendly to, to the working class. He's He's got this guy, Mark Hanna, the senator, who later helps McKinley's campaign. And he's He's doing things like paid vacation time and paid sick leave. And I don't want to go with this crazy, they wouldn't have called him a pinko back then, McKinley. But meanwhile, today we look at McKinley and we say, all, all he has all the vices. Theodore Roosevelt has all the virtues. He was the environmentalist. McKinley mm-hmm. even meets with, uh, with Booker T. Washington. So he, he meets him a few times, doesn't have him to the White House. So the, this is what happens in history. I love that Theodore Roosevelt's ghost goes back and digs into things like that and resets the table lets us let us meet the guy for who he really is i would say you're absolutely right about that that you know even in his time when he was president and when he was uh politically active uh, in office i think that people took him up in different ways and he played people off each other too so i mean keep your eyes out for the new book but stories from his daughter and stories about his sisters they used to keep houses in washington where they would let TR see people when he didn't want to see them at the White House. So there's some great stories about Joe Cannon. There's some great stories about uh, people that he didn't want to see. He corresponded with Booker T. Washington more than almost anyone else uh, other than his family members. So he had these back channels, whether it was with diplomats like Cecil Spring Rice, you mentioned, or with African-American leaders like Booker T. Washington, that a lot of that ran through his family networks as well. And it depicted a very different man than the one that he presented on the bully pulpit, right? So different. And here we get to meet that real man who's behind the image he portrayed, behind the Teddy that everybody loved. And he says himself that anybody calls me Teddy, it's a, it's a sure sign that they don't know me. And it's interesting that he has these two, these two parts of his personality. There's the Teddy, which scholars like yourself and, and folks at even on the carrier, the USS Theodore Roosevelt, they they always call him Theodore because it was important to him. Sometimes you cringe, I think, as, as a, a scholar of Theodore Roosevelt when you hear people call him Teddy. And this is a, this is something that your book does really well. It tells us the, the real man was Theodore Roosevelt. The ghost, the guy we see on the Nationals games and stuff like that, the, the teddy bear. The bear, by the way, still gets shot. He didn't really save the bear. He just said he wouldn't shoot it because it was tied to a tree. Little things like that. Talk about the legends. Mike, I want you to make your pitch here to people. Many of the books behind me, I've been looking around to try to pick some of them out to, to show people here while we've been talking. There are so many of them. There are hundreds of books on Theodore Roosevelt. There are ones written by greats like, like David McCullough. Why should people... If they just want a clear picture of him, maybe they've never read a book on Theodore Roosevelt before, or if they've read 20 or 30 books like me about Theodore Roosevelt, 
why should they pick up Theodore Roosevelt's ghost and get to know the real man before he gave up the ghost? Well, that's, I, I think if you've read a lot of books about Theodore Roosevelt, buy mine, because if you think you know him, you don't. And if you haven't read any books about TR, buy my book, because you'll get to know the, the various different guises and forms and images that he's taken over the last 100 years. You may have seen Robin Williams's depiction in A Night at the Museum. We talked about the Washington Nationals and the president's race. You might have seen him in documentaries. None of those are the real person. I'm not saying that my book gets him perfectly right. I don't think anyone can get him perfectly right. Ultimately, all of the portrayals of Roosevelt are connected to us. So my hope is when you read the book, you realize the part that you're playing in the story of Theodore Roosevelt's legacy. And that for me is the ultimate takeaway, that we all play a part in the legacy of the historic characters that we read about, that we have a, an image and an impression of them that, uh, that, that we create. And ultimately, we think that we can speak for them sometimes. And what my book tries to persuade you is that we can't ever speak for them. We can speculate, we can, we can show our perspective or what we think might, might happen, but ultimately Roosevelt's dead and his ghost on the other hand is alive and well, and, and everyone is very much a part of that. One thing I never do here on the History Author Show is ask people what, I might ask them a little, like you said, speculate. I never say, what would they think definitively? Because we just cannot know. They surprise you. TR certainly surprises us. Theodore Roosevelt's ghost certainly had many surprises for me, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Thank you so much for sharing it with me today. I love to talk about TR, the real man, not just the one that we know from, from the ghost, from the ghostly portrayals, from the commercials, from the million pop culture things. I thank you so much for this bully conversation. I wish you the best of luck with the book, with your podcast, and also look forward to speaking with you again about your next book, Personal First Person Relationships and Remembrances of Theodore Roosevelt, so we can get to know the real Rough Rider even more. Thanks so much for having me, Dean. It's been a real pleasure. Again, the book is Theodore Roosevelt's Ghost, The History and Memory of an American icon. Remember, you can always find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the historyauthor.com page for this episode. By buying a book through us, you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. Look forward to me chatting with Michael Patrick Cullinane again for his book, Remembering Theodore Roosevelt, Reminiscences of His Contemporaries. My thanks to Michael Patrick Cullinane for joining us and for giving us this accurate portrait of the 26th president beyond the caricatures that are in politics and pop culture. Please remember to check out his podcast. That's the Gilded Age and Progressive Era podcast. You can also find details on him, his work, his scholarship, and his podcast by visiting michaelpatrickcullinane.com. He's on Twitter and LinkedIn, and you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. If you enjoyed watching today's time travel adventure, I dug up some nice old clips of Theodore Roosevelt from the Library of Congress. Please do subscribe to our YouTube channel for future time travel adventures. Well, that's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio or wherever you enjoyed this journey into yesterday. Until that next trip into the past together, on behalf of Michael Patrick Cullinane, 
and Theodore Roosevelt's ghost. Thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular 